as you turn this morning to the Gospel of Luke. Last Sunday, we began a message, a two-part message, from the Gospel of John as we're making our way through that text there in John chapter 12. The message is entitled, One Young Donkey, Some Palm Branches in a Crowded Street. And there were some things last week that we talked about that were obvious in the text. They were obvious. The crowded street, the palm branches, the donkey that Jesus was on, all those things are obvious in that text. But there are parallel passages, other passages in Scripture that parallel what we read in John chapter 12. And I didn't want us to just move on past the triumphal entry without seeing these things in particularly one specific parallel passage. Because I'm not sure we can understand and get the gist of what was happening there in the triumphal entry if we bypass some of these parallel passages. They shed light to what actually was going on. God's word is never in conflict with one another. Never forget that. His word always exposes and reveals and helps our understanding as we bring in other passages, particularly as we go through the gospel and the parallel passages of scripture that deal with the same event but are told from different perspectives. Different information is gathered from from the same scene, just a different passage. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And last week we talked about what basically was obvious in the text, but Today, I want to show you some things that were perhaps, at least by the people there, overlooked in the text. Overlooked in the scene. Certain things were obvious, but I want to say to you, the crowd was oblivious. They were caught up in their own agenda, caught up in their own human man-made expectations, caught up in what they thought was going to happen, what they wanted to happen. That isn't the way it ultimately turned out. But they were so focused on what they wanted to see that they missed reality. And I think sometimes you and I can get there. That you and I live that way and we might battle the same thing where we're so focused on what we want and what we think should happen is going to happen that we miss what God has planned and what he wants us to see to begin with. And so I want you to look in Luke 19 this morning. We're going to divert from John. It's the same event, just looked at in a different way. This is just as inspired by the Lord. Luke, this gospel writer who was not there, he became a follower of Christ later on after the resurrection. But here he is being inspired by the Holy Spirit. John, on the one hand, was a first-hand eyewitness. Luke had his revelation directly by the Holy Spirit of God as things were shared to him and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write and to pen these words. It's the same event of the what we call the triumphal entry. We call this Palm Sunday where the crowd had lined the street and Jesus had mounted that young donkey. He had crested the Mount of Olives and was coming down the steep western slope 
he had to drive a ride right by the Garden of Gethsemane to get into Jerusalem. And so as he bypasses Gethsemane, he comes down that steep slope and into what is called geographically the Kidron Valley. And there's a brook, the brook Kidron, that goes and flows right through the valley, a, a stone bridge that Christ, that is still there today, that Christ crossed over to enter into the eastern gate, what's called the eastern gate, that would get him up into Jerusalem. And as he stayed on that same road that would lead him right to the temple, that's where Christ went. And as we learned in our passage last week, if you remember, now listen carefully, that the crowd that day had lined the streets. The crowd was growing larger because they were getting close to the Passover. Jerusalem in this time, they estimate, had a population of around fifty to 100,000 people. But by the end of the week, by the time Passover would arrive, there would be, some estimate, as many as one million people there in Jerusalem. We're not sure how many were here. I'd say it's safe to say that the crowd had begun to gather, that there were a couple of hundred, maybe a quarter of a million people in that region of Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't very large at the time. It's still not a huge metropolis but there could have been as many as a quarter of a million people who had gathered in that section, that eastern section of Jerusalem, lined the street there as Jesus was coming over the Mount of Olives. Again, remember, they thought he was the Messiah, the political Messiah. Remember, they thought he was going to come in and drive out the Romans and set up Jewish dominance once again in the region. They weren't thinking spiritually, per se. They were all thinking politically. Yeah, he's the king. He's going to come and occupy the throne of David. We're going to rule and reign with him politically, geographically, not spiritually. That's why this same crowd on Sunday, they said, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This same crowd by Friday was hollering, crucify him. The same crowd that received him in Jerusalem on Sunday, they rejected him on Friday. And so as Jesus is on that donkey, that young donkey there, that, that, that foal, he, he's, he's there and he's cresting the hill and there's all this noise of jubilation. All this celebration. But when you look at Jesus and focus on him, It's almost like his response is incongruous. It doesn't fit with the exterior. It doesn't fit with the surrounding jubilance. What's Jesus doing? Is he looking around, smiling, happy, waving at the crowd like he's in a parade? No. Is he trying to get the crowd pumped up? Waving branches back at him? Jesus doing? Look in Luke 19, verse 41, and we'll see. And when he, Jesus, was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. He wept? 
You mean he wasn't laughing? No. He was weeping. You mean he wasn't joining in the praise? No. He was weeping. He wasn't thrilled with the praise and with the, the, the exaltation. No. Jesus was weeping. And he says in verse 42, If thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee. He's speaking of Jerusalem now. He's speaking of the inhabitants. He's speaking futuristically. He's foretelling the future. He's making a prediction here that the day would come that Jerusalem would be compassed about by their enemies. And we know that happened. Verse 44, And they shall lay thee even with the ground. Thy children within thee, they shall not leave in thee, Jerusalem, one stone upon another, because you knew not the time of thy visitation. In other words, verse verse 44, Jesus is saying, because you didn't recognize the visitation of grace that is occurring right now, one day you will experience the visitation of judgment. And then it will be too late. Verse 45, and he went, Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. I'd like for you this morning to keep your Bible open to this passage as we look at it together. As Jesus is descending down the western slope of the Mount of Olives, at the top he was, they say, 200 feet above the city itself of Jerusalem. And from that vantage point he could look out and it was as though he was reading a book. Because not only could Jesus see visually, but Jesus sees what other men don't see. Jesus sees the real condition of our lives. He sees the real heart. He sees the inward battle. He doesn't just see the outward uh, uh, trappings and all that had surrounded him on that road. He didn't focus on the exterior, the noise of the jubilant crowd. He saw what they couldn't see. And what they couldn't see and what he saw caused them to weep caused him to cry there are two instances in the bible where we read that jesus wept one we've already covered just a few weeks ago john 11 35 it's the shortest verse in what we call the english bible and it simply says jesus wept that word there is a unique word it means a quiet restrained shedding of tears he is crying but he's not vocal about it he's not loud just very quiet. Jesus is shedding tears as he stood at Lazarus' grave, as he saw the pain that death had caused in the family members. But this word right here used in Luke 19 is an is a altogether different word. It's the Greek word kleo, and it literally means to sob, to wail, to weep outwardly. 
Now, I wonder this morning, I want you to use your imagination and your memory. Have you ever seen anyone well? Have you ever heard anyone well? Sob out loud. So, so loud and vocally that it was obvious that they were in distress and pain. You've seen individuals do that. I have too. You may have even done that in your own life. Where you couldn't hold it in any longer. It wasn't just a quiet tear that ran down your cheek and dripped on the floor. It was obvious that something was wrong. Moved to a point of, of, of just obvious emotion. A well We'd call it a lamentation. I'll never forget the day years and years ago when one of my family members had gone through a divorce. And the one spouse was leaving and taking the six-month-old baby with them. And I'll never, ever forget as my relative stood in the driveway watching their wife and their six-month-old drive down the road, never to return. And my relative, wailing and sobbing in a way that I'd never heard in my life in real life. Gracious, that was 28 years ago. I've never gotten over that sound. I remember in various settings, funeral services, watching family members of those who have died a tragic death, literally sobbing and wailing, and we understand that, completely justified. And as long as I live, I'm not sure I'll ever get those sounds out of my memory. That's different than just crying. Right? That's different than just a little teensy-weensy shedding of a tear. What I'm talking about to you is the same word, the same Greek word that the Holy Spirit chose to use when describing what Jesus was doing here as he was on the donkey coming down into the city. He wasn't just wiping a tear away here and a tear away here. Jesus literally was on the back of that colt and he was sobbing and wailing and lamenting. We would even say and go so far, and I'm not trying to do injustice to the Scripture, but we could even go so far as to say that his body was convulsing, he was trembling. It was obvious to anybody who chose to pay attention that he's emotionally broken. Why? Why? Why was Jesus weeping here? I mean, everybody around him was praising his name. Everybody around him was jubilant, raising their hands, taking their coats, laying the coats on the ground, laying their palm branches on the ground, crying out basically, you're the greatest. And he's weeping. What made Jesus weep here? What fueled his tears? Why was Jesus weeping? I want to give you two reasons. First of all, 
He was weeping because of his passion for the people he longed to save. His passion for the people he longed to save. I want to tell you again and remind you that the reason Jesus Christ came to this earth wasn't to occupy a throne. It wasn't to be a politician. Jesus came to this earth for one main reason. To give his life a sacrifice for sin. And to redeem mankind. Are you with me today? That's why he came. He didn't come to be popular. He didn't come to be Mr. Cool. He didn't come to, to tap into the culture. He didn't come just to dialogue with people. He didn't come just to perform miracles and leave them the same way he found them. Brother, Jesus came to give us life for their salvation. Jesus came to save people. That's his mission. That's his purpose. That's his heartbeat. He came so people would be saved. And by the way, remember, that's why he's given us the local church and given the local church a mission and a mandate so that we could go be now his instruments so that we would see people saved. We need to get back to the business of seeing people saved. That means you have to open your mouth too. That means you have to invite, you have to share, you have to give your testimony too. God didn't just tell the preachers to share the gospel, friend. He told every Christian to share the gospel. And I submit to us today that we're not seeing the people saved that God wants us to see saved because we're not sharing the gospel. We can pass the buck and point fingers all we want to. But it comes down to us as local churches and as Christians, we're not sharing the gospel. It's not that there are no more lost people. They're still as lost as last year's Easter eggs. And they're still just as spiritually confused as all get out. We're the ones not sharing. We're not inviting. We can blame this church and that church and this preacher and that preacher all we blooming want to. But it comes down to us as God's people whether or not we're going to really be excited and serious about selling out to the mission that Jesus has given us to sell out to. Jesus had a passion for these people here. These were his own people, John verse, the chapter 1 verse 12 says. These were his own. He came home. He came to his own. And his own received him not. And here he is. The week of his crucifixion. And he comes to his own people. And they rejected him. You see, he saw what no one else sees. I want you to know that he knew and he saw their faithlessness in verse 42. He said basically, listen... He said, said, I possess and I am offering to you everything that you will ever need for true and lasting peace. But they couldn't see it because of their own unbelief. They were glad he came to heal them. They were glad he came to perform miracles and do the spectacular. Man, they jumped on the Jesus bandwagon because it was sensational. He didn't come just to do the sensational. He 
came to change their life. He came to redeem. And their rejection of him broke his heart. He saw their faithlessness, but notice verse 43 and 44, he saw their future. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that in 40 years, the Roman general Titus was going to come and encamp the Roman army around the city of Jerusalem, and he was going to besiege the city, and eventually they would succumb. Starvation, attack, they ultimately surrendered. The ones that were left were taken away. Some of them were left there. Others were taken away. And they came into the temple and to many of the edifices that had been set up around Jerusalem. And they literally crushed the stone blocks into fine powder. There was not, as Jesus predicted, their archaeologists, historians say, there were not one, there was not one stone, one brick left standing upon another. And they came in and literally flattened the city and they flattened the temple. Their pride and joy. They were more excited about the temple, the building, than they were about Christ, their Savior. Jesus knew their fate, and he wept. And I say this to you this morning. Do you know that Jesus is just as passionate about you as he was these citizens of Jerusalem? You know what grieves the heart of God today? You know what causes God to weep, if we could say it that way? It's our faithlessness. It's people that don't trust him, people who he has a passion for that are yet to be saved. You who sit here this morning and you've heard the gospel time and time and time and time again. You know Jesus Christ loves you and he died for you. And he is issuing that call to you to salvation. And the Holy Spirit of God is drawing you and drawing you and drawing you. And he longs for you to say yes to him. And he wants to save you this morning. He wants you to come to him this morning. He wants to give you a brand new life this morning. He wants to take the guilt and the stain of your sin away from you this morning. Because he knows your future. He knows that your life, that when, when individuals reject him and they die without him, he knows that everyone who does that goes to an eternal hell. And that breaks his heart. He knows that at the end of a Christless life is a Christless eternity in the lake of fire. And the same God that created you and bought you is the same God who longs to save you and redeem you from sin and the lake of fire and hell and to restore that relationship with him. Why did Jesus weep? Because he had a passion for those same people that he longed to save, just like he has a passion for you. What caused Jesus to weep? Number two, it's because he had a passion for the honor that his father deserved. Notice verse 45, what he did. As he came into the city of Jerusalem, the Bible says that he went into the temple and began to cast out those that were selling stuff in the temple. Just as he had done three years earlier at the beginning of his public ministry, this is the second time he had entered the temple and began to just 
if I could say it this way, kind of, he started kicking people out. <laughs> You're like, I didn't think God would kick people out of his house. Yeah, he was kicking people out. Just as he had done the first time three years earlier, I could imagine in my mind him gathering cords and whips and literally as he did the first time, he used them and started swinging and was driving people out of the temple, turning over their tables. The money and the doves went flying and the sheep went running. Why? Preacher, what was the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal was. He shows us here what the big deal was. He says in verse 46 there, notice it. He says, it is written, my house is to be a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of thieves. You see, Jesus knew that their dishonor was revealed in their treatment of God's house. It wasn't being the house of prayer like God desired it to be. God had instituted the temple to be a place where his presence was manifested and people from all ethnicities could come. They're not just the Jews, but from all over the world could come and they could get in communication and pray and use it as a house of prayer and use it to call on God. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you know, do you know what the new, new temple of God is? Do you know now in 2017 what the temple of God is supposed to be? You say, oh, oh, I know, preacher, I know. It's the church building. Wrong. The church building is not the new temple of God. You're like, "Uh uh-huh, we call this the house of God. Yeah, I know that's what we call it. God doesn't live in this building. Are you still with me today? Are you asleep or awake? If you're asleep, you can't answer out loud, all right? (laughs) I'm sorry, that was a dumb question, all right? God doesn't live here. You know what the new temple of God is? You ready for this? It's you, it's believers. You're the new temple of God. God dwells not in buildings made with hands. You remember that, right? God dwells in you. You are the dwelling place of God. Man, Christians, believers. You're the new temple of God. You're the tabernacle of God. He dwells within you. You you are his building. Not this. Now thank God for this. I've already told you this morning, I'm so grateful for this right here. And I'm glad we have a place to meet. But I've said it before, and you have too. If 1200 West Grantham, the building here, gets destroyed by fire, flood, hurricane, tornado, or whatever, we still have church. Because it's a group of spirit-filled dwelling places gathering together. So make the application. God says that you and I, you and I, if we were to apply it, you and I as his people are to be houses of prayer. Places of prayer. People of prayer. Now, we are to do this when we come together. 
churches are to pray. Churches are to seek the face of God. But I'll say this to you. Churches that have members that don't consistently seek the face of God can't claim to be places of prayer. God wants you and I as individual Christians to seek his face and to pray. So I want to ask you something. Church, gang, saved person, do you have a consistent life of prayer? You see, all the building, all the temple was at that time was just a building. They had, they had long since forsaken God. They were just going through the motions. Jesus said, I'm, I'm hurt because I'm passionate for the glory and the honor of my Father. And this place is supposed to be a house of prayer, and it's not. You've dishonored my Father. Then he goes a step further. It wasn't being used as a house of prayer, but not only that. It was a well-tuned business with no sense of the supernatural now. Verse 45. He came in and he saw it as that they were just there making money. Man, they knew those one million people had to come from somewhere. And they had to offer sacrifices and everybody had to buy the turtle doves and the lambs and all that stuff. And so the high priests had allowed individuals to come into the temple and set up shop. And they were selling animals for, for sacrifices. Many of the animals, it's documented, were blemished animals. They would make a bargain. i tell you what, here's a good one right here for 20. But I'll sell you this one with a lame leg or a blotch. I'll sell that to you for 10. They were just making money. Hand over fist. They had, they, they had lost the whole purpose of why God gave the temple to start with. They had lost sight of the whole point of the sacrifices that were to point to Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. And they were selling. They were buying. The people were buying. They were just there going. Here, here it is. They were going through the motions. No sense of the supernatural. They were going through the ritual. Year after year, year after year, year after year. Kind of reminds us of Christians that go through the same rituals week after week, week after week, week after week, week after week. And we don't ever experience in our individual lives the supernatural power of God. His presence is a million miles away and we don't even realize it. We're not disturbed by it. <laughs> We're like Samson, who when he divulged to Delilah what the secret or what he thought the secret of his power was, and they trimmed his hair, he didn't realize that the Spirit of God had long since departed from him. You say, ooh, 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 I know what you're talking about now. Now you're talking about church, right? No, 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 no. I'm talking about our individual lives as believers. When's the last time, when's the last time in your own private life, in your own daily walk with God, you experience God's supernatural presence? I'm serious. When does that happen for you? And you, and you, and you, and me. If you think 
your Christianity and your spirituality is determined by one hour, one day a week, my friend, you are grossly confused. This doesn't determine your spirituality. What you do with Jesus every single day determines your spirituality. If you don't sense his presence Monday through Saturday, guess what? Unfortunately, you're not going to experience his presence from 1030 to 1145 at 1200 West Grantham Street on Sunday morning. You're not. See, I do believe in corporate worship. I do believe that we are to gather corporately every single week. I believe that. And, hey, we even go more than that, don't we? We're three-time-a-weekers, all right? (laughs) I don't care if you meet two times a day every single day. I don't care if you meet 14 times a a week here in this building. If you're not walking with God, fellowshipping with God, singing to the Lord, worshiping God, experiencing his presence in your individual life, you're not going to experience his presence here. Friend, If we don't sense God's presence at church, don't just point up to the pulpit. Don't just point to the song director. Stand in front of a mirror and point in the mirror. Because corporate worship is simply an overflow of your own private worship and relationship with God. Seven days a week. Now I know this. The word of God is preached at Faith Free Will Baptist Church. And we sing songs that honor the Lord. And we sing songs in a way that honor the Lord at Faith Free Will Baptist Church. We do everything we can prayerfully to Set it up to where if you're walking with God this week and you show up hungry and you show up wanting God to speak, he's going to do something in your heart and life. But you can't take food and shove it down the throat of somebody that doesn't want to eat. You can't make somebody experience the presence of God one hour when they hadn't experienced his presence any for the previous six days. And all we're doing when we do that is just going through the motions. That's it. Just a big show. Stop asking people, what kind of church service did you have today? Start asking them, hey, how was the show? I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm tired of shows. Shows don't change lives. God's presence does. I don't know about you, but I'm more determined than ever before. I'm going to walk with God seven days a week so that on that seventh day when I show up, What I experience is a corporate overflow of what God's people have been experiencing the six days prior. Can I get a witness this morning?
If your church experience is dry, my friend, I say this in love, but it might be because your six-day experience with Jesus is dry. I close with this. Three questions as we get ready to pray. Is Jesus weeping over you today? Friend, do you know Christ? Are you saved and born again? Do you know that you know if you were to draw your last breath that you'd be in heaven with Jesus? Have you repented of your sins and trusted Christ? If you don't know that today, and you have to say, Preacher, I'm not saved. Listen, your Savior longs for you to repent and believe the gospel. Second question. Do I weep over the things that Jesus weeps over? Do a study sometime on what frustrated Jesus. It'll surprise you. When's the last time you cried over the same things that Jesus cried over? It's time that we as God's people get back to shedding tears for lostness and tears for lost people and tears for people that are bound in sin. It's time we get our burden back. It's time we get our tears back. That's the message for some of us this morning. We need to come and gather around this altar and say, Lord, help me once again to recapture the spirit of brokenness like you have over lost people. And until we recapture that as a body, as a corporate body, we'll never see what God wants us to see and experience as a ministry, as a church. And the final question as we pray. Are you fulfilling your God-given purpose as his temple? God designed a temple to be one thing, his dwelling place. A place saturated, filled with his presence. Are you experiencing that? Seven days a week? Do you know what it is daily to be filled with his presence? Daily to experience his touch and his power? You can. You can. He wants you to. He longs for you to fulfill the purpose that he created for you as his temple, as his dwelling place. Now, We've heard the word. It's been preached and explained and declared. He's done his job because he's used it to speak. And now it's time for us to decide what we're going to do. Whatever decision he wants you to make this morning, I invite you to respond with a yes to the Lord. If it's to be saved, respond with a yes and give your life to Christ.
If it's to develop his heart of compassion for lost people, I invite you to say yes and to come and kneel and seek his face about that. If there are other needs in your life and he's reminded you again that your daily experience with Christ is not what it ought to be, would you slip out today and come and kneel and say, Lord, yes, whatever you want from my life, that's what I want for it too. Maybe God is leading you to become a member of this church and to unite and lock arms with other believers to make a dent and a difference in the kingdom of God. Maybe you need to be scripturally baptized by immersion after salvation and you've been saved but you've not been baptized and God's speaking to your heart about coming following Christ in believer's baptism. I don't know what needs you have. I don't know what decision God has been speaking to your heart about. But now's decision time. I invite all of you today to respond with a yes to whatever he's saying to you. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. As God